we are in Mark chapter 8, the Messiah, his mission, and my response. Mark 8, we're going to be looking at verses 27 through 38, and let's go ahead and pray and prepare our hearts. Father, we are grateful to be together on this Lord's Day. It is good to know that your mercies are new and fresh every morning. Great is your faithfulness, O Lord. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sin, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there's forgiveness, with you amazing grace. Every sin I've ever committed, you have erased. That's why you came. That's the good news of the gospel. You came to die that we might live. And Lord, this is the message that we proclaim. It's a message of hope, but there's also another side to this gospel story, and there's bad news, bad news for those who reject the Messiah. And that's gonna come out in this message as well. So Lord, we humbly come before you because we know that your word is inspired and it's going to speak. The question is, are we going to listen? And each time we come before the Bible, each time we come before your holy word, that's a question that we must ask. We wanna hear. We want to have ears to hear and eyes to see and a heart to obey you. Because what you have for us, Lord, is good. It's not to condemn us, but to give us life. In fact, you came to set us free from death, bondage to sin, and eternal judgment. And so this is the gospel, Lord, and and it's why we're here because we celebrate you for loving us so much. We love you because you first loved us. So we lay this time at your feet, Lord. Take it where you want it to go. Speak to us, Lord. Your servants are listening. Anyone here who may be on the fence or may be checking out Christianity, I pray that they'll see who you are and commit their lives to you. And Lord, also prepare our hearts as we get ready to go to the communion table this morning. I pray it'll be a rich time for all of us who know you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, where we left off last time is we ended the last uh, session together, the last time together, with this particular story. Let's just, for the sake of time, pick it up in verse 23. Taking the blind man by the hand, Jesus brought him out, Mark 8, 23. He brought him out of the village, and after spitting on his eyes and laying his hands upon him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, for I am seeing them like trees walking about. Then again, Jesus laid his hands upon his eyes, and he looked intently, and he was restored. And he began to see everything clearly. That miracle and the placement of that miracle has many levels. It's not just about a physical healing. It's about seeing everything clearly in a spiritual sense. And the Lord had been working on the disciples and other people who were in the group and were following, and he was trying to open their eyes to who he was. He's done two feeding miracles, he's done incredible healing miracles, and we're told in Mark 6, 52 that the apostles still had a hardened heart. They still didn't understand everything. And the healing of this particular man is going to look back and look forward to what's ahead of us because Jesus is about to ask 
the question of all questions. Who do you say that I am? We must link the story or the healing that comes just before this, that the man began to see everything clearly. If you want to put an ellipsis on that, just kind of go dot, dot, dot. And now Jesus is going to ask, are you seeing everything clearly now, boys? Do you see who I am? And by extension, he's going to ask the readers of the Gospel of Mark, and that includes us, are you seeing everything clearly? Are you seeing who this one is who came to this planet to save us? I hope that that's the case for all of us. And of course, I think it's true that our eyes kind of open little by little on the Christian journey to many spiritual truths There's many things that you begin to see in the light of the Bible, in the light of God's person and character, and it is true that some change happens little by little. It's kind of like if you have one of those lights that you can kind of turn on slowly. You know, it doesn't always, it's not always the best idea to, with the light, right? Although with teenagers, that works very effectively. But it does seem like we have eye-opening little by little, but this particular question that we're going to look at this morning, we can't get wrong. If you're going to boil, you know, any discussion you have with a person about spiritual things, they have to know this, you have to know this, I have to know it. Who is God and how do you get saved? If you're having any spiritual discussion with anybody, whether a person in a world religion or a cult, boil your conversation down to those two simple things. Who is God? How do you get saved? After all, If you don't have that right, nothing else really matters, right? So let's pick up the story in verse 27. Jesus went out along with his disciples, Mark 8, 27, to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he questioned his disciples, saying to them, who do people say that I am? Now, I think Sumi's back there on the slides, and I want to show you, Sumi, if you take us to that first slide, I want to show you just kind of the area that Jesus is traveling in. So Uh, right here is where Jesus did most of his ministry around the Sea of Galilee. We've been talking about that area quite a bit. If you go up the Jordan River and you follow it up here, here's where the tribe of Dan landed. This is kind of the northernmost border for Israel, and here is Caesarea Philippi. So Jesus would have traveled from the area of the Sea of Galilee some 20 miles north up to the border of Israel, and this is the location that he's in. Would you go, Sumi, to the next slide? I want to show you kind of what this area looks like. This is the northern part of Israel. And just a side note, we, are, we have set a date for those of you who want to go to Israel. We're going in the spring of 2018. So mark your calendars for that, yeah? And if you want to go, we do have spots open. And it will cost about $4,000 per person. So you have about 18 months to save money. So this would be a trip I would highly recommend. I have walked these areas, and uh, so this is, this is the great fertility area of Caesarea Philippi. As you, uh, you can see all the greenery, and this is kind of the water source that feeds down into the Jordan River. So everything kind of starts up here. This, this flows down from a place called Mount Hermon, which is in the northern part of the uh, country of Israel. What you see here is an area that was very known for worship. Sumi, go to the next slide if you would. And as you get a little closer up, you can see these niches. And 
they found coins in this time, and the coins depict that they had figurines in these niches. The figurines were of these so-called beings or gods or goddesses that were supposed to inhabit this area. And on the coins, they had these different figurines. One was the god, small g, called Dan, or I'm, I'm sorry, Pan. Uh, there was a his, his consort that was supposed to be in here and kind of, you know, a different uh, pantheon of different gods and goddesses. Uh, go on to the next one if you would, Sumi. And so as you get closer up to these niches, these were known as gates. And in this cave area, they said that the god uh, Pan was born in the cave. And so people used to take offerings and they would put them into the cave. And this became a place of worship in the pagan world but it became a very abominable place because they built a couple of temples here and what would happen is all manner of evil and wicked type of uh, pagan practices would occur here and so people would would kind of uh, do their worship to this god called pan go on to the next one sumi this is what the god pan looked like and if you look at his picture he is a half goat half man, uh, a god with a small g. He's a Greek god, and uh, if you begin to look at him, you can see that he's got horns coming out of his head. He's kind of a frightening, wicked-looking creature. And, uh, you know, if you begin to look at his picture, he kind of looks like a caricature of somebody else that we know who, who uh, you know, took on a caricature over the years. We know that that doesn't represent Satan. Satan does, doesn't have horns coming out of his head and a pitchfork and doesn't wear a red union suit, just so you guys know. That's a caricature that developed over, year, over the years. Satan is a fallen angel. But this is an interesting thing to think about, just to see this picture of this particular false god and see kind of how he looks. Let's go to the next picture. So what happened is this is an artist's rendering of this particular area. This is called the Rock of the Gods. You can see the niches in the, in the area, and they were all over the place. You can see the ones that we've looked at here. And a couple of temples were built here, and so the people would come, and they would begin to do their idol worship in this area. I'm gonna leave that picture up for a second. And I just wanna remind you that when you see something in your Bible, like Jesus took his followers to the area of Caesarea Philippi, now you can see what the area was. And a question that a student of the Bible should be asking when you read something like that is, why did he go here? Why would he travel up north to this farthest region that he could go? Why this area? Why does he go here to ask this question? And some scholars have said that this is like the center of Mark's gospel. Everything else will now lead towards Jerusalem. Everything else will lead towards the cross. This is kind of, if you will, maybe not the final exam, but one of the final, final exams because Jesus is getting ready to die. And he wants to make sure that the people to whom he's going to hand the gospel off or the baton of the gospel know who he is. They understand the message of the gospel and they understand what he has come to do. And he has taken them to this particular area to make a very clear statement. And his statement is going to come out in the following verses. But the first question he asks is, what are the crowds saying about me? What do the people think? Jesus was interested to know what the opinions are. And you know the opinions on Jesus are all over the board. 
You can find in world religions and cults and the occult, there's a Jesus, quote unquote, in every world religion, in every cult, even in witchcraft, they have a Jesus. 2 Corinthians 11 says that you can have the wrong Jesus, though, and the wrong gospel, and you can be wrong enough to lose your soul. There is another Jesus, 2 Corinthians 11, 3 and 4, and another gospel. In fact, Jesus was a very common name in the first century. And so, which Jesus do you have? Do you have the Jesus of the Bible? A lot of people are comfortable with the Jesus that they create in their own minds. I like the Jesus who said this and did this, but I don't like the Jesus who says I'm the only way to God. That sounds a little too narrow. Well, you can't pick and choose, folks, what you're going to believe about what he said. This is not a smorgasbord as much as I like that. Or to use the frozen yogurt illustration, you can't put your little sprinkles on there and say, well, I don't like that. You got to take it all. You got to believe that what the Bible says about Jesus in every place is what he said. This is what the testimony is. Now, there's an insight from Luke's gospel. I just want to show you really quick. Just turn to the right. It's the next book, Luke 9. There's a couple of parallel accounts, one in Luke, one in Matthew, of this particular interaction. I want to show you something that Jesus was doing that we don't always think about in this setting. So uh, here's what it says. Luke 9, I want you to see in Luke's gospel, it follows after they picked up the 12 baskets, Luke 9, 17. Look at verse 18. And it came about that while he, Jesus, was praying alone, the disciples were with him and he questioned them saying, who do the multitudes say that I am? I want you to notice that Luke says Jesus was praying right before he asked this question. What do you think he was praying about? I would venture to say, and I think that this is a reasonable conclusion, that he was praying that their eyes would be opened and they would see everything clearly. He's about to drop the question of all questions, and I would say to you an application for us as Christians if you turn back to Mark chapter 8 is that when we're about to talk to someone about Jesus Christ it would be good if we pray because when we pray heaven is enlisted and there's an old saying in evangelism talk to God about people and then talk to people about God talk to God about people and then talk to people about God we are in a spiritual battle but the battle belongs to the Lord you have a family member who doesn't know Jesus. You are about to witness to somebody. It doesn't have to be a long prayer, but ask for the Lord's favor. Ask for the Lord to open that person's eyes. We do have a spiritual battle. and We must recognize that battle. And it interests me that the Son of God was praying before he asked this question of the disciples. Who do people say that I am? Who, what is the latest talk of... Uh, the groups that are out there. And they responded, look at Mark 8:28. They told him saying John the Pap John the Baptist, that's what Herod believed. Herod believed that Jesus was John the Baptist who had returned from the dead and Herod was freaked out. Others say that you're Elijah and others are saying that you're one of the prophets. Another gospel says they believe you're Jeremiah. There was a rabbinic teaching that said that Jeremiah was involved with the ark of the covenant in some way. And that when the Messiah would come, Jeremiah would appear and in some way bring the ark back out of hiding. Malachi 4, 
uh, verse 5 says that Elijah will come before the great and terrible day of the Lord. And when in Matthew 17, the apostles ask him after the Mount of Transfiguration, which is going to come on the heels of this text for a future message, they say, why do the rabbis, why do the teachers say Elijah must come first? Because they had seen Elijah and Moses on the Mount of Transfiguration. So they asked the natural question, I thought he was supposed to come before the Messiah comes. And Jesus says, oh, I tell you, Elijah has come and they didn't believe but Elijah is coming, and students of the Scripture say, what? But the Scripture goes on to say that they understood that Jesus was speaking of John the Baptist. Here's how it works. John the Baptist was the first coming of Elijah, if you will, to precede the first coming of Jesus, the Messiah. The literal Elijah is coming before the second coming of Jesus. So John the Baptist was an Elijah-type figure. He's tied to Elijah in Luke 1.17 and other places. And uh, he preceded the first coming of Jesus. Remember, John was born just about six months before Jesus. And the Bible tells us that the literal Elijah is coming before the second coming of Jesus, according to Malachi chapter 4. And so this is what's going on. Jesus is asking the question, who do people say that I am? This area of Caesarea Philippi is named for the Caesar. You could say it this way, Caesarea Philippi. And it was the area of Herod Philip, and that, this is where he had his headquarters. And Augustus had given him the region, and so he had built a temple to the, to the emperor. And oftentimes in the ancient world, they would even worship the emperor as a god. And so this is what was going on. This is why this area is called what it is. And I've shown you some pictures of it, and I'll show you a couple more in a second. So here's Jesus at this particular area, and he is looking up to an area where the god Pan, the half-man, half-goat, uh, dwells or supposed to have dwelled. His name Pan uh, has the idea of panic. He's often displayed as playing a flute. The city uh, came to be known as Panias or Panias. A corrupted Arabic rendering now has it as banyas or banias. He's this grotesque half-man, half-goat deity, the goat of the, excuse me, the god of shepherds, mountains, forests, and wild animals. He chased women and nymphs and tried to lure them by playing his flute, including the nymph Echo, who rejected him. As Pan chased her, she fell off a cliff, and her repeated cries echoed as she plunged down the precipice so this is how this all ties together and so this is what this this god did and and uh, ray vanderlaan has a series of videos that was put out by focus on the family and he says if you go further back from the roman and greek time back into the old testament era this area was dedicated to baal the god baal and it may have been known as baal Hermon, connected to the region of the mount mount Hermon. And all kinds of terrible idolatry and paganism went on here, including the possibility that right here people were sacrificing their children to the God. So blood would be shed. Sexual immoral, immorality would be going on. And Jesus goes to this place and he asks this question of his disciples. Okay, people are saying I'm... John the Baptist, others are saying Elijah or one of the prophets. Pick up the story in Mark 8. Look at verse uh, 29. 
And he continued by questioning them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said to him, thou art the Christ. Every person who comes along and has any interaction with the Bible has to see this question for us. Who do you say that I am? Are you seeing everything clearly? This is a personal question. This is why Jesus asked it this way. If the question didn't matter, he wouldn't have asked it. You have to answer the question for yourself. Nobody else can answer it for you. You must answer the question, who do you say that he is? Will you go with the Time Magazine articles, with the so-called experts on the History Channel, or will you go with the Word of God? Will you go with what Jesus said about himself? Peter's about to give this tremendous response. There's a fuller treatment of it in Matthew, which is just one gospel back, Matthew 16. Let's turn there together. Matthew 16, 13, Jesus takes them to the area of Caesarea Philippi, as we've already looked about, we've looked at. He asks them, who do people say the Son of Man is? The response some say John the Baptist, Matthew 16, 14. Others, Elijah, still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Everybody see the word the Christ there in verse 16, Matthew 16, 16. The Christ is Christos in Greek. It's the Hebrew uh, Messiah. So when you hear Christ, that's the, that's the Greek form of the Hebrew Messiah. Was Jesus ever called the Messiah in the New Testament? Yes, in John 1, uh, some of the early disciples say, come, we have found the Messiah. The woman at the well says, I know when Messiah comes, he will, he will show us all things, he will teach us all things. And Jesus said, I am who, the one who is before you am he. Did Jesus ever say he's the Messiah? I don't know, did he? Yeah, he did. He said, the one standing before you, that's who I am. I'm the Christ. Greek Christ, Hebrew Messiah. What, is, what does it mean when we say Messiah? We're talking about the anointed one. When you think of the word Messiah or the word Christ, it means literally the anointed one. Jesus is his name. His name is means Yeshua is salvation, or simply put, Jesus or Yeshua means salvation. So every time Mary called him, Jesus, come for dinner, she was saying, my salvation, come to dinner. That's what his name means. Christ is not his last name, just so you know. Christ is his title. He is Jesus, the Messiah. Everybody with me? He is Jesus the Christ. Now think of it this way. His name means salvation. Christ means the anointed one. Link them together. What was he anointed to do? He's anointed to save you. In the Old Testament, what they would do is they would anoint kings and priests. And you can see this in the life of Saul, the life of David. You can see this in the book of Exodus with the, the priests. And they would take the oil, and it was the oil of consecration. It was a way of setting one apart for a specific task that God had given to them. 
If you were anointed as the king, obviously you were set aside to rule. If you were anointed as a priest, you were set aside to be a go-between between God and the people. Jesus is the anointed one, and his specific mission, what he was consecrated, anointed to do, was to save you and me. He is Jesus, salvation, anointed to save. That's why he came. And people will say, well, I think Jesus came to show people good morals. Oh, he did do that. I think Jesus came to be a way shower. Oh, he did do that. But the specific reason Jesus came is in his name. He came to save you. That's what he was anointed to do. And the Holy Spirit came upon him, Acts 10, 38. And Peter says in the house of Cornelius, Jesus was anointed with the Holy Spirit, Acts 10, 38. And he went around doing good. And Peter preached the gospel to the house of Cornelius. And the Gentiles came to Christ and were baptized and were saved. And Jesus asked the question, who do you say that I am? Look at verse uh, 16, Matthew 16. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now Jesus right here could have said, oh no, hold on Peter. No, 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 the people have it right. I'm actually not. If he had a chance to correct, it would be here. But what does Jesus do? He doesn't correct Peter. He commends Peter. Notice he says, Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, what if you were Peter right now? Yeah, I knew I got it right. Yeah. Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood, that is humanity, did not reveal this to you, but my Father who's in heaven. My Father just gave you a supernatural revelation. If you want to know who I am, the Christ, it's my Father who has just affirmed my identity. Through you, Peter. Peter, like, yeah. <laughs> getting revelations yeah my father at my baptism the heavens open and the voice from heaven said this is my beloved son in whom i'm well pleased at the man of transfiguration the same voice will say this is my beloved son listen to him and through peter god says he's the christ he's the long-awaited messiah he's the anointed one this is his identity. Are you starting to see everything clearly? I think Mark's intention, and remember Mark's gospel is most likely the thoughts of Peter. The intention of Mark's gospel, and here Matthew writing, is to make sure we pause and make this personal. Oh, this revelation's from my Father in heaven, and I also say to you that you are Peter, Petros in Greek, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not overpower it. And there's been all this debate for 1,500 years. The church, the Catholic church, and the Orthodox church, and the Protestant church have been debating what this means. On this rock I will build my church. There's a difference in the Greek language. If you look at Peter's name, which was changed by Jesus, his name is Petros, P-E-T-R-O-S, and it means like a little stone, and that's what Peter was. On this rock I will build my church. The second, so I, you are Peter, Petros, and on this rock I will build my church is Petra, P-E-T-R-A. There's a city called Petra in Jordan, and it's known as what? The rock city. If you look at the word Petra in Greek, it's not, it doesn't just mean a massive stone. 
In fact, it means a mountain of rock. Now, everybody put your thinking cap on with me. Sumi, go through the pictures one more time. Uh, you know what? Just go back. Go back. This one's fine. Go back to the uh, original sermon slide. On this rock, I will build my church. Now, I want you to see, take another look at this. This area was called the Rock of the Gods. And these areas here were known as gates. And guess where people said these gates led? They were known as the gates of Hades. There was a teaching that linked to Baal, and it said that Baal, uh, he, he basically died in the winter, and he was supposed to come back to life in the spring. And that Baal, who kind of merged with the idea of Pan at this area, was the god of the underworld, the god of the dead, get this, the god of Hades. And it was up to him whether or not people would get out of Hades and would somehow escape death. And, he, you know, they kind of taught that he had the key. And in the ancient thinking, gates were not for offensive purposes. They were for defense. And in, on the coins, they showed these figurines. And Pan was in one of them. And Echo was in another. And Olympia was in another. And they were supposed to be kind of the, the key holders, if you will. And Jesus in this area, on this rock, I will build my church. Do you know what's quite possible? Is all the debate, it's quite possible that Jesus was saying, on that rock, I will build my church. I'll let you think about it. At least it's worthy of your consideration as a secondary meaning, because Protestants say it's Peter's confession. That's the rock. It's not Peter. Peter's not the first pope in a long line of successions of popes. That's, that's not the case. But the Protestant church says, well, maybe the rock Petra is Peter's confession. But could it be that we've overlooked a geographical marker here that says a lot? And remember, Jesus says, and the gates of Hades will what? Not prevail against my church. And that's what these were called. And Jesus is saying this, final exam time, boys. I'm going to build my church right on top of the gates or the rock of false religion. I'm going to demolish it. And in the rabbinic sources, again from Ray Vanderlaan, he says that the rabbis used to say that when the Messiah came, he would destroy the gates of Caesarea Philippi. Hmm. All of a sudden, you begin to see that what Jesus is saying to his disciples is that your mission, boys, is to destroy false belief and let people know who I am. Are you seeing everything clearly? Do you know who I am? I'm the true God. Everything else is false. Do you, know, you want to know who has the keys to Hades and death? You're looking at him. Revelation 1, 17 and 18. He has the keys. And I want to know the guy who has the keys. Especially of Hades and death. Do you agree? I want to know who can open the prison cell. I want to know the one who can set me free from the law of sin and death. And that one is named Yeshua. Jesus the Christ. Anointed to save. Jesus is not talking about sissy stuff here. He's saying, look. The gates are for defensive purposes, and I want you to take those gates on, boys. I want you to go on the highways and byways and tell people how they can actually be free because the devil's been lying to people. 
And people go here and they go to this place and they offer these sacrifices and they give this worship to this false god and it just gets them in further bondage and they are behind those prison cells and you are going to preach a gospel that sets them free. Do you believe that? Do you? Do I? That's what Jesus is saying at this particular location. And of course, you know, Peter is uh, lauded here, and he will have the keys. We see that in the book of Acts. He preaches in Jerusalem, Acts 3. 3,000 come to the Lord. He goes to Samaria, Acts chapter 8. And it's not until then that the Samaritan believers receive the Holy Spirit. And then he, in Acts 10, he goes to the house of Cornelius, and the Gentiles receive the gospel. Peter did have keys, but the keys were the gospel. Acts 3, Acts 8, Acts 10, he opens the door of the gospel to the Jews to the Samaritans, and to the Gentiles. This is how it worked. But then Jesus is going to say something that is going to shock them, and let's turn back to Mark's account of it, and we'll, we'll pick it up there. So turn back to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. I'm so far ahead of my notes, I've got to catch up with myself here. Mark 8. And he warned them, verse 30, to tell no one about him. Now, you always wonder when Jesus does something like this. Why does he do that? R. Kent Hughes says, he didn't want to incite a political riot staffed with loyal but unregenerate people, close quote. He was always doing things on God's timetable. He revealed it to the apostles, but he wanted them to be careful because there was a timeline he was working on. Messiah's mission his identity is everything. But then all of a sudden this turns. This had to be a thrilling moment for Peter and the group, but Jesus, Mark 8.31, began to teach them that the Son of Man, Mark 8.31, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. The word in Greek for killed implies a violent death and after three days rise again. Now I've heard some liberal scholars say, Jesus didn't literally rise from the dead. Let's, let's calm down, folks. Okay. Yeah, Jesus is a good moral teacher and everything. But the resurrection is actually a metaphor. It's a linguistic uh, approach. It's a metaphor for the struggle between the Romans and the Jews. It didn't literally happen. People don't literally rise from the dead. Uh, wait a minute. Jesus just said, they're going to kill me. They're going to do awful things to me. And in three days, I'm going to rise from the dead. And if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then that prophecy, and that's nothing less than a prophecy, is false. And then what does that make Jesus? Can he be the great moral teacher that everybody's lauding him to be in the world that doesn't want to accept him as Messiah if he just told something that's not true? He just said, they're going to kill me, and I'm going to defeat death. And he gave specifics. That is a prophecy. And if that does not come to pass, then Jesus cannot be God and the Messiah. But we do, we do know it did come to pass. And we know that Jesus is who he said he was. He is the Son of God. And he's the Son of Man, the, representation, the representative of God and the representative of man, if you will. The Son of Man, a messianic title. Daniel 7, 13 and 14 is what you can write down. Who will receive the kingdom. And so he teaches these things. Many, he'll suffer many things. He'll be rejected. 
He names the group, the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes uh, are the group that belong to the Sanhedrin, the leading council in Israel. And he was stating the matter plainly. No secret language here. It's on the table. And Peter, the one who had just gotten the great revelation from the Father in heaven, he took him aside and began to rebuke Jesus. That's always a dangerous thing to do, by the way. I'd be very careful. You don't start to rebuke God. (laughs) The word rebuke has the idea of a correction with passion. Kind of like this. Jesus, come here. I'm the guy that gets revelations from heaven. Just just listen to this. Maybe Peter put his arm around the Lord. No, no, no. See, you don't have this one right, Lord. Have you ever have you ever prayed that way? Lord, Lord, can I can I give you some insight on this one? What? No, 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 no. You you can't die. By the way, the idea of a dying Messiah was repugnant to most of the Jewish minds. And in fact, in Isaiah 53, the great prophecy that says he'll be wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, the the rabbis would say that the suffering, only the good parts are about the Messiah. The suffering parts are about the people of Israel, not the Messiah. They did not believe the Messiah was going to suffer. They believed he was going to reign on the throne of David. In fact, the apostles have been arguing as they're kind of making their way around town, who's going to be the greatest because they think he's going right to the throne. So I'm going to position myself really well right now. Talk about wanting to climb the corporate ladder. I don't know how long you think it's going to be till he's on the throne. I think maybe six months. Yeah. What do you think? What kind of chairs do you think we'll sit in? I'm getting fitted for my crown right now. It's gold with little sparklies in it. We're going to rule. We're going to reign. Twelve thrones. We'll be judging the tribes. Isn't this awesome? Oh, it's going to happen, but just not for quite a long time. You see, in order for you to sit on that throne, Peter, Jesus is going to have to die for you. You can't sit on that throne. You can't be in God's kingdom unless he does what he came to do the first time. Everybody with me? See, we kind of missed that one. We want it now. And they were just like us. Oh, uh, yeah, the throne sounds wonderful. We've been even doing a couple miracles over here. People looking up to us. He multiplies bread and fish and this is cool. I, I could do this. I could do this. And then Jesus says, uh, boys, I'm going to Jerusalem. They're going to beat me. They're going to spit in my face. They're going to scourge me. And they're going to kill me. Can you imagine being the apostles? You've left everything. You're just starting to see clearly who he is. You just got a supernatural revelation from heaven. And all of a sudden he says, I'm going. No, 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 no. That doesn't fit in my plans, Lord. See, I already have, I put an outline together of my career path, spiritually. Oh, well, Jesus was stating the matter plainly. And he turned around, verse 33, and seeing his disciples, and I'm sure, I'm sure the looks on their faces had to be priceless. And he rebuked Peter. And he said, Get behind me, Satan. For you 
are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Do you know that Satan loves to play on the interests of man? Man has his interests. God has his. And Satan doesn't always work in the ways that we think he works. Please hear me well. Sometimes we think, oh, it's going to be some overt. Yeah, that, that dude pan with the, with the horns, he'll show up, and then I'll know. No, 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 no. Satan works in more subtle ways oftentimes. Like he'll put stuff before you and say, doesn't that sound good? That even sounds religious, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. And all of a sudden, it's not about God. It's not about God's kingdom. It's about you. See, that's why this is coming up. Oh, sure, I'm sure that Peter was driven and the others by love for the Lord. No, Lord, this can't happen. You can't die. But I wonder, implicit in this verse, is whose interests were really in the hearts of those who said, it can't happen this way. Was this about God and his kingdom? Was this about Jesus and what was best for him? Or was this about them? On and on it goes. And he tries to tell them, I came to serve. Stop arguing. The greatest among you will be servant of all. And Satan dangled the carrot on man's interest. And all of a sudden, the man who was getting supernatural revelation from God, the Father, has been used as a tool for the enemy. And oftentimes, when you are walking the path as a Christian, sometimes this kind of stuff happens. You know, one minute you're hearing from God and it seems crystal clear, and the next minute you're going, boy, I've heard that voice before. And I don't think that's of God. And Jesus rebuked Peter, and I'm sure Peter had to be devastated by what the Lord said. And he summoned the multitudes, along with his disciples, uh, back in Mark 8. He summoned the multitudes with his disciples and said to them, 34, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Now, if you're a person standing there at that time, when you hear cross, you do not think of designer jewelry that goes well with your earrings. (laughs) When you hear cross, all you think of is people who walk in a death march. All you think of is how the Romans put people right on the public road to warn you not to turn on Rome. When you hear cross, the only thing you can think of is a terrible death. And Jesus, all of a sudden, from the heights of spiritual revelation to thinking, man, we're we're coming into the kingdom probably in just a short while, all of a sudden he's saying, look, by the way, not only am I going to a cross, but you're going to have to take up yours as well. I'm sure that had to be a very difficult (laughs) transaction. To take up a cross was the worst of all possible things to hear. One writer says, Christ leads the procession carrying the cross, and we, his followers, follow in his steps. Do you know, this is tough to hear. Do you know right now that some of our brethren in the Middle East have been crucified in the last month or two? Now, for many of us sitting here today, we will not experience a literal cross. And sometimes we say, well, my cross is my boss. Heavy, right? My cross is the 91 freeway. I'm with you. 
Every time I drive over the overpass of that freeway, I thank God I'm not on that freeway. And I pray for you who are on that freeway. But the 91 freeway is not a cross. A cross, if you want to use the metaphor, is all about dying to your own interests. It's all about realizing that in modern evangelicalism, we've gotten it down to a point where people will go to a church if they're sufficiently pleased with a checklist that they have. But Jesus says, no. Yeah, you should find a good church. Find a church that does ministry and teaches the word and all of that and and is true to the gospel. But look, folks, Christianity is not about this right now. This is part of it. Christianity is about a holy huddle where we go out into that world and we face those gates of Hades and we say, you know what, there's a way you can be free. I'm not talking about beating people over the head with the Bible. I'm talking about engaging people and saying, look, there's a hope. There's a God who came for you and for me. But to do that, you're going to have to deny yourself. You're going to have to break some of your comfort zones. You're going to have to take God at his word and pray and say, Lord, I I don't want to spend another week without witnessing to somebody. I don't want to spend another week without having a serious prayer life. I don't want to spend another week caught up in the rat race and doing just what the world does and then I check in on Sunday. The word deny means completely disown or utterly separate oneself from someone and what you have to separate yourself from is yourself. (laughs) You're going to have to learn that to really live in the Christian life, you must die. But when you die, you really begin to live. It's such a paradox. Sometimes I'm like, Lord, really, really? Set those things aside, and I'll use you for my glory. Self-focus is part of the modern evangelical identity. One writer says, this is why increasing numbers of evangelical Christians care little about the glory of God or reaching out to the lost world. For them, Christianity exists to enhance their lives, their marriages, their bank accounts, their prestige, but to bear a cross, to pay a price for standing for Christ, no thanks, close quote. I know it's not easy to hear, folks, but we're just going verse by verse through the Bible. I thought about skipping this section, Just kidding. No, I didn't. (laughs) This exhortation had great relevance for the Christians in Rome. Mark's gospel probably directed at them for many generations. If you read early church history, do you know how many people were persecuted under the Roman Empire? It was brutal. Brutal. And in fact, when you read church history, some of those people started to even wish that they could be a martyr. I don't understand that but they wanted to die for Christ. They felt like it was their highest honor. And Jesus says, for what does it profit a man to gain how much? 36? The whole world. He doesn't say a city block, your own island. How many of you like to watch those uh, shows where people are looking for property? Go ahead, confess it. It's all right. I've seen them too. Yeah. Island. How much is that island? Yeah. Be on that island, all my problems will be gone. Build my house, these curtains, this couch, 
Yeah, sounds pretty good, right? He says, if you gain the whole world, what would it profit you? Not just an island, not just a city block. If you forfeited your own soul. 180 years after the death of Charlemagne, about the year 1000, officials of the Emperor Otho opened the great king's tomb where in addition to incredible treasures, they saw an amazing sight. The skeletal remains of King Charlemagne seated on the throne, his crown still on his skull, a copy of the Gospels lying in his lap with a bony finger resting on the text. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? Um, I was reading a little bit this week and one pastor said, the question is generally, verse 37 is used as thought, it, it means this, what shall a man take in exchange for his soul? But it's the very opposite. If the soul is lost, what shall a man give to reclaim it? His case will be utterly hopeless. He cannot buy back the life that has been forfeited because of his sin and selfishness. Many writers believe this is an allusion to Psalm 49. Just listen to it. It's verses 7 through 9. No man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of his soul is costly and he should cease trying forever that he should live on eternally and that he should not undergo decay. Psalm 49, seven through nine. Nobody else can pay for your soul and you can't either. There's no exchange rate for your soul. It must be paid for by the blood of Christ. One way, but he has made the way and that's what's so awesome. How many people do you think are playing Russian roulette with their souls this morning? How many people are right now in eternity, if the Bible is correct, if Luke 16 is truly a look into the afterlife, how many people are in the afterlife wondering what they would need to pay to get out? And the Bible's saying, it's too late. If I asked you, Ray Comfort often says, to give me your eyes for $10 million, would you sell me your eyes for $10 million? Most people say, absolutely not. My eyes are precious to me. I wouldn't sell you my eyes for $100 million. And then he follows it up and says, how much is your soul worth? What would you sell your soul for? For whoever, final verse, is ashamed of me, on my and, of me and my words... For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, this is Jesus, folks. We've got to deal with what he said. The Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. I was listening to Rabbi Zacharias this morning, and he said, you show me a society without shame, and I will show you a society that is flirting with hell, close quote. Wow. What are we ashamed of today? We, are we ashamed of the gospel? Everybody else is talking about what they believe and they have no hesitation to tell you what they believe, but many Christians will hold back on the gospel. Why? Well, we all have our fears, right? We all have our struggles. We all try to figure out sometimes how to approach someone. We know that there's taboo subjects out there. Uh, can't talk about religion. Can't talk about politics, right? And so 
oftentimes we hold back. It's quite telling to analyze what causes shame in our culture and in the church and what does not. Would you be ashamed of a man who pushed you and your children from being crushed by a speeding truck and was killed in your place? Would you not want to talk about that story? Or would you say, oh, it's too personal, I don't want to share it? No, Jesus says, don't be ashamed. He wasn't ashamed of me. I don't want to be ashamed of him. The book of Hebrews in chapter 2 and 11 says he's not ashamed to call us brethren. And I'll tell you what, there are many times when I wonder why he's not ashamed to call me his son. I told the men's breakfast yesterday, I'm still a man. I preach behind a pulpit, but I'm a man. I have my struggles. I have my doubts at times. I struggle just like you do with life and circumstances. And sometimes I wonder why he's not ashamed of me. But you know what? He went to a cross and bore my shame. And even though he despised the shame, he did it for the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross for you and me. This is personal. He loved me and he gave himself for me. Let's bow. Father, by Jesus' wounds, we are healed. Man, this is just so radical. It's so in our kitchen. (laughs) It's so personal. And yet, Lord, it's so true. May it challenge us, Lord, this week not to be ashamed of the one who wasn't ashamed of us, the one who took our shame, the one who was made a public spectacle at the cross, the one who was spit upon and scourged and crucified and mocked, challenged. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross and we'll believe in you. And we know you endured all of it for us, Lord. Whenever we come to a communion table, we want to make sure that we acknowledge what you did for us. But we know it doesn't end with the cross. You triumphed over that tomb, Lord. You came out victorious and you say, because I live, you will live. You died for our sins. You rose for our justification. It's good news, Lord. And there is a response. We know who the Messiah is. We know his mission. And my response is to follow. And Lord, we all know we don't follow perfectly. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for your loving kindness. But Lord, let us follow the path of life. Let us take up our cross and follow you, Lord. Let us not be ashamed of the good news of the gospel. Let us see those gates and where people are held in bondage to fear and false belief. And may those gates burst open, Lord. May we burst them open as the church. May we make a difference. And Lord, I thank you for this fellowship and how people are passionate about the gospel and they are sharing with their friends and they are praying for people and they are stepping out in faith, and I pray that there'll be more of that. Your head and heart bowed. If you don't know Jesus, man, the best thing that you can do right now is trust him. Something like this, I would just encourage you to pray it right now. Jesus, come into my life. Thank you that you died on the cross for my sins. Thank you that you rose from the dead. I receive you as my Lord and my Savior. I want to follow you. I repent of my sins. And I place my trust in you. Please change me from the inside out. If you're a prodigal and you've been running from the Lord, just seek his face right now. He'll be gracious to you. 
Lord, thank you for your love and your grace. As we come to your table now, we just pray you'd bless those who are going to reflect on your body that was pierced and your blood that was shed. And we find great joy and peace in our hearts and a renewed passion to follow you. In Jesus' name.